This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Liz Skitch, who is a woman of many talents. She is a performer, a writer, a director, producer, comedian, clown. Uh, welcome to Triple R. And mother. And mother, <laughs> which is kind of the inspiration for your new show. Totally, yeah. So Mother Morphosis is the name of the show. So a nice play on words there. Metamorphosis, instead of becoming a cockroach, um, you have become a mother and decided mm. to incorporate that fact into your work. Yeah, that was that was a starting point. Um when I was massively pregnant at my my ripest, I thought, I feel like I've got an alien inside of me. You know, this doesn't feel natural. And, yeah, diving into Kafka really, you know, really helped, you know, un- unpack a little bit of the madness I was feeling. How did you go from that madness, though, to creating a show which draws on your clowning skills, your physical comedy skills and a whole lot more? Well, at first I didn't know what what style the piece was going to be. All I knew was I didn't want it to be a stand-up show Um, because I've done that and I thought, you know, I'm 40, I've got to push myself to move into new territory. But I just knew I needed to make a show about it because I was was expecting my second child. I just found out I was pregnant with baby number two and it all sort of happened a bit sooner than I had expected and I was, was sitting there feeling very selfish, thinking, how am I? going to stay sane um I wanted to go on tour I want it was time for me Richard (laughs) number one was walking (laughs) you know I was like I'll put her into boarding school I'll hit the road no um but yeah it was you know baby number two was on the way and I just thought uh, I need to cook up a little show uh just slow cook something here on the home front and so that I can stay sane while I'm at home with a toddler and a and a newborn I can totally understand the need to stay sane and to to stay yourself as a opposed to allowing your life to be completely taken over by children because Mm. obviously I don't have any children so I can't, I'm I'm not exactly au fait with the process of putting your life on hold effectively. Mm. But everyone I I speak to who's a parent and particularly uh, a parent with a creative practice of some kind, Mm. you want to maintain that and you want to maintain your friendships and networks and connections but you've also got this huge responsibility. So how did you find the space and the time? And they do, they do take over your life. You know, even if you do find the space and the time, like the biggest learning for me throughout this process has been the kids and Donnie are always number one. Um, the minute I put the show before them or the creative process, you know, the minute mummy, mummy, you know, leaves, leaves the household, um, you know, without um, having sat down and had their wheat bix in the morning, you know, if I just float off to the rehearsal room to be creative, uh, things are not happy on the home front, you know. So you've got to sort stuff at home, make sure the washing's on, make sure everyone's cool, then head out the door. Uh, but, look, you know, it's... Um, it's uh, like I say, you got to slow. Co- you got to slow cook. Show I slow cook shows these days. It's um, okay. I've got I've got a weekend here. All right, I've managed to uh, to lock in a two week part time creative development there. All right, we're going to boost daycare to make that possible, and Donnie's going to take the kids a little bit more too. And you know, it's it's logistics. It's it's exquisite logistics. Sounds like a hell of a lot of juggling involved, which for somebody who's adept at physical theatre and clowning <laughs> seems like a, in some ways a natural progression. But shithouse at juggling. <laughs> uh, but, no, the um, the piece is, yeah, very much um, 
about about identity. Oh, it's it's a it's about a lot of different aspects of motherhood. But but um, my contribution to the piece really is uh, one of my one of my monologues is is called Molly's mum. You know, and it's, you know, hello, I'm, I'm Molly's mum, the person I used to be. Liz, you don't need to know about her. All you need to know is I'm Molly's mum, and and they're two very separate. Uh, separate identities but yeah early on I realized the show couldn't be just all about me so um, you know there have been so many shows about about motherhood and I'm not certainly not the first person to become a mum and to experience this so very early on I went right let's let's get out there let's talk to other mums started conducting interviews with with mums in my community and and gathering stories and and finding out about other people's experiences which really helps put your own in perspective and finding the comedy in other people's experiences as well totally and that's it that's you know it's been so much fun working with Maud Davey on the show um we've so Maud's directing absolutely yeah Maud Maud's been there from the beginning um really co-devising directing and yeah has brought her really unique um unique sense of humor to the show she's got a great great ability to to skew ideas and and move things left of center and so yeah you know even when we're exploring the darkest material in the show you know it opens with a a story of a a woman who who had such a hard time uh, with breastfeeding and experienced so much judgment for moving her little one you know onto the bottle so quickly um you know, she says that, that breastfeeding was more painful than, than childbirth. Uh, and the whole time I'm holding a live chicken. <laughs> I was about to ask about the chickens, given that uh, for anyone who follows you on social media, there was an auditioning process of chooks. And I was kind of seeing these videos pop up on my Facebook feed and I was like, what are the chooks actually going to be doing in the show? <laughs> well, there's one chook. There was one successful chook. Uh, How do you audition chooks? Let's just talk to us about that for a moment. Because what were you looking for in them? How well behaved were they? Absolutely. You know what? It was all about, can, will you not run away? Will you not peck me? And and look, you know, there's... It's, it was about presence to Richard and I... Oh, having the I, right personality that, in the trip. I, I think uh, that our successful uh, our successful chook, Rachel, who plays the role of Astrid, um, you know, really approaches it with, with sensitivity and, and, and at times she steals the show. She opens the show, actually, to a beautiful piece of music um, created by Chris Wen, our sound designer, um, and... Um, and yeah, look, it's it's such a nice opener for me because it's she she warms the crowd up. She's got them in the in the palm of her hand. No, <laughs> claw of her foot. I don't know what the analogy would be for a chook. So obviously, it's a creative and playful show. Uh, and without wanting to give too much away from reading some of the reviews, for example, so I know plenty of people who like to go and see shows completely unspoilt, knowing nothing. Mm. Uh, and mm. but I tend to, particularly when I get to interview someone about their work, mm. I do tend to read one or two reviews. So I know Vegemite sandwiches get a Guernsey in the show. Yep, as it, people are entering the space. So, yep. so you're actually almost mothering the audience. It is, it is. I, I do feel like I'm nurturing them, which is in my best interest because uh, I want them to be to be warm and I want them I want them leaning in yeah there's pumpkin soup uh yep yep uh we're giving away pumpkins at the end of the show <laughs> hunks of pumpkin 
<laughs> which is all tied in too, you know. It's, um, there's a, a scene... Um, a scene which was inspired by one of the mums in my mum's group who, who called her little boy, you know, his nickname was Pumpkin right from the beginning when he was in her tummy, but he had a ginormous head, you know, and childbirth was excruciating and, and life-threatening in the end for her. And, um, and yeah, that whole, yeah, monologue is delivered um, whilst nursing a, a giant pumpkin or two. <laughs> the production been getting some glowing reviews. Do you read your own reviews? When they're glowing. <laughs> <laughs> so you wait for somebody else to tell you whether you should look at them or not? No. Oh, look, I'm just, I'm far too self obsessed not to. Um, it's 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 we're having a dream run. We are really having a dream run, and and that's it. I've I've um, experienced. You know, it's it's look. I tell you what, it's really nice to be doing the show outside of festival time. Um, for a start, you know, reviewers are able to come. Um, so yeah, it's one thing getting the reviewers in the door. Then it's like, oh, and it's glowing. Oh, I yeah, feel extra extra special at the moment. But that's it. It's it's not all it's not all about me, Richard. It's not all about me. It's it really is. Well, it's it's a combination of 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 stories yeah from different mums from my community and the creative team whoa it's a that's one of the things i love about the performing arts is it's a collaborative art form even if you're a, a solo artist maybe you're a dancer you've still got a lighting designer and and a, a sound designer and you've got the front of house team who are making things flow smoothly or a great stage manager or yep, yeah it's yeah it's so, so one, one person shows are always yet yeah, so much more than that yeah and um is this presented by your own company? Or? Yes, it is indeed. It's DBase Productions, and um, and yeah, it's DBase has done a few shows with La Mama now, based in Brisbane. Um, but yeah, since I moved to Melbourne, I represent the the Melbourne appendage. I wouldn't say arm. I'm more of a, a toe. <laughs> There's a bit of a trend of Brisbane artists moving down to Melbourne of late. Oh, look, it's you know, it's for me, it was love. Um, I, I was really dedicated to the Brizzy art scene, and Debase is still thriving up there. We're celebrating our twentieth twentieth birthday this year. Fantastic! Happy That's birthday! Right. Thank you so much. Um, and um, we've just done a beautiful big show up there with the State Theatre Company, and it's been. Um, travelling travelling around. Hopefully we'll bring that down here. That's the plan. What was the show? It was called The Longest Minute and um, it it was essentially uh, the... Um, it was an Indigenous, non-Indigenous collaboration um, inspired by uh, the Jonathan Thurston, uh, the, the, the final minute of the famous Cowboys final when Jonathan Thurston's play was extended for a minute. And Jonathan Thurston, you know, achieved official hero status. This is something to do with sport, I can tell. <laughs> it's an alien world to me. Um, thinking of uh, Brisbane companies, I mean, uh, Elbow Room were founded in Melbourne, but kind of Marcel and Emily moved from Brisbane to Melbourne, I think almost 10 years ago now. Yes, Most indeed. recently we've seen uh, the Danger Ensemble relocate to Melbourne and their uh, production, The Hamlet Apocalypse, is opening in November at Theatre Works and I've heard nothing but rage reviews about that show so but is Brisbane's ecology not able to support these artists is that why people moved I mean you moved here for love you said but yeah 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 oh look I I I don't think any artist can afford to function in only their hometown I think it's it's glorious to to um to perform in your hometown uh you know where you've built your audience and people are familiar with your work and I feel like after yeah sort of six years in Melbourne I, I'm sort of finally reaching that point uh where I've I've, I've got 
kind of a family-like kind of fan base. Uh, it's beautiful to look out and see familiar faces. Um, and um, but I, yeah, I think even if you live in Melbourne, you you got it. You got to play other cities. Oh, and absolutely. So it, I think it's kind of inevitable that that Brizzy artists, uh, yeah, bring their work down here. Maybe they end up relocating. But yeah, I'm a big advocate for keeping the scene thriving up there. Uh, yeah, it's 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 actually really sad. I feel so hypocritical because I've done it, but I, it's really sad um, when artists it used to be really sad when artists mates would move away from Brizzy and relocate to Sydney or relocate to Melbourne. And a little selfish part of me would be like, I hope you come back because often they do. And this is and this is one of the things that I was thinking that can, I mean, the all my friends are leaving Brisbane trope is so well established. There's even a film with that name. Yeah, yeah. But and it's not just Brisbane; it's other cities as well. It's Tasmania as a whole state, for example. But one of the things that I love, just recently I interviewed Adam Wheeler, who's a choreographer and dance maker. He's been working on the mainland for 17 or 18 years. He's now going back to Launceston, where he grew up, to take charge of... Uh, he's actually gone back to take charge of Taz Dance, the, the state dance company. Mm-hmm. And it means, yes, people leave Brisbane and it's a sad thing, but they often come back with so much more knowledge and skills which they can reinvest in the local ecology and make it stronger and richer. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Do you see yourself doing that? Uh, I'll have to have a chat to Don. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, Look, I do do fantasise about about heading heading back to... um, Yeah, heading heading back to Queensland and becoming some sort of fabulous arts bureaucrat. Uh, but but I think the reality is you, you really do invest in uh, wherever you are and and I, I, I sort of feel like I'm only just starting, you know, things are really only just starting to cook down here and I run the Moulin Beige uh, every month and it's it's starting to sell out every month and it's it's kind of like why, why would I leave right now? Uh, and I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. This is home now. This is home. I've been chatting with writer, performer, and many other things. Liz Skitch. Liz, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Jakob Obom is. Uh a man of many talents. He's been described as uh, as a trained magician to me and as an artist, but he's here in the studio to talk about a theatrical piece called Horror, which uh, a friend of mine saw a trailer for on Facebook and immediately assumed it was a horror film, not realising until the very end of, the, of the, the video clip he was watching that it is a live theatrical production that is kind of paying homage to and recreating the kind of feel and scenes and styles of horror movies on stage. Jakob, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. So why create a work like this? Uh, Horror films, there are many of them. They exist in their own world. Theatre is not cinema. Why try to, in some ways, blend the two? Um, Just because of that, I uh, like the genre and it's only known as a film genre and I never saw it on stage and I was very curious if it would be possible to put it to stage. So I think that was the big challenge why I wanted to try it. 
And it's clearly been successful. I've been reading uh, some of the reviews from uh, from overseas. Uh, it's been described as a loving homage to horror films and a masterclass uh, in stagecraft in one review that I saw. Uh, and one of the things that really intrigues me, having read a little bit about it, is I'm starting to spot some of the kind of uh, horror film references that, yes. that are <laughs> appearing in the play. So the fact that it begins, of course, with uh, characters arriving at a deserted house in the middle of a thunderstorm. They're wearing red capes, which immediately <laughs> made me think of the film Don't Look Now. Yes. Uh, then I've seen some of the other images which seem to be referencing imagery from, uh, I don't know, American horror of the 70s, for example, Japanese horror more recently. So clearly you're a great fan of the genre. Was it more a case of what, what you had to leave out in terms of uh, genre references? references and imagery rather than what you could actually include? Uh, no, I was watching I already very fast. I have ideas of what I like. So there was already when the thoughts of making this, I knew sort of my favourite and uh, I wanted to see if I could uh, uh, use it to put it to implement it into the production. Uh, I think the most difficult thing was to have a own story and see how I could use other elements to support my own story, but still refer to what people recognise. So I get the sense there are references to Evil Dead, The Exorcist, The Ring, yeah. in terms of some of the imagery that is being created on stage. Yeah, and Evil Dead was actually, uh, I would say, the, the starting point. I love The Evil Dead too. And uh, I find it a very theatrical film in any way. And it is made uh, very theatrical because it's used less digital effect post-production. And it, most of it is made front of the camera. And, and it's very physical. So I thought that would be great to do that. So that was sort of my starting point. Yeah. So if uh, that is the starting point and if Evil Dead 2 is also one of your favourite films, it also suggests that this uh, uh, production horror may not be for the faint-hearted because uh, I get the feeling there could be a bit of blood being spattered around. Uh, a little, little, little bit more blood. Yeah. <laughs> now, it is, well, for the faint-hearted, I always say also, if it gets scary, you can always close your eyes. <laughs> uh it is a theatre production, so it will be different than movie. Movie can much more symbolise the reality as we know it, and you would be in a theatre in this case, and you would see people live on stage. So it's very hard to get the same feeling, and it depends on your own uh, sensibility. And so for the diehard horror fans, it would be very difficult for me to scare them. Hopefully I will entertain them that they would see what they like in another context and also see what they thought only function in cinema also can works on theatre. So they so and for the people who are a little bit sensitive, maybe there are scary moments. Well, it's it's been fascinating for me to see uh, how kind of stagecraft can bring such creativity to to perform. So to capture the the tone and style of a horror film, for example, there was a, a production here in Melbourne uh, a couple of years ago, Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, based on the the Joan Lindsay novel, which had a a, a sequence partway through the play in which I swear the entire theatre jumped in their seats and some people screamed. It actually created that cinematic yeah. jump yeah. kind of jump shock uh, uh, in the taking it from the, the, the screen and placing it in the theatre. So clearly it can be done. For you in terms of uh, as an artist and making this work, 
uh, talk to us without giving too much away about using practical effects on stage to to create kind of the tone and mood and and look of a horror film. Yeah, uh, I like uh, magic and illusion, and I think that's my biggest tool to be able to do uh, things on stage which get the same feeling of sensation like a movie. Uh, a movie is a special effect anyway because you can cut and you can do now post-production. In theater you can't, but uh, illusions are made for live because illusion in film is not working the same as if you watch it live. So I think that's my biggest tool. And of course, like in movie and also in theater, music is a good supportive uh, for to build up tension. And I think what's the difficult thing is not so much to make people jump out of the seats to scare them, because if you suddenly uh, turn on the volume or you make something sudden, people will uh, jump. Uh, the difficult thing is to build up tension that something will happen and you don't know when it's going to happen and uh, you do the Hitchcock uh, suspense thing. That was more difficult to create that uh, suspense. So that sense of uh, yeah. of impending horror rather than the the visceral moment on yeah, stage. Yeah, so I combine it both. So that there would be, I try to make some jump scares, but I also try to make a consistent uh, suspense. And I don't use any language, so it's really a visual uh, told story. And I also like, uh, so the important thing for me to make it was not only to make a horror show, which was spectacular and fantastic. I really want to make a theatrical piece where horror was the, the genre. Uh, to support uh, a contest. So it, uh, there's a lot of humor in it. There's a drama to it. It's based on a dramatic story uh, in the sense that I set up... Uh, uh, a narrative? Yeah, sort of. So, And I choose the ghost story because it's easier for the stage, for the location, a house. And I base it on a traumatic experience from a childhood. So there's a, a family drama. There's a sort of something about domestic violence and escaping your own demons and having to be able to face them again. Uh, and that's the horror story. So the past is a sort of a ghost story coming back to you. And this girl, which is the main character, has to deal with it. So there's more levels to it, which makes it also for all different people enjoyable to watch. And and the theme about fear and horror is the one holding it together, where there is a lot of visual effects referring to all kinds of genre. So even a little bit gore, a little bit uh, shock, a ghost, and everything put together. <laughs> Interestingly, in in uh, traditional uh, theatre drama, confronting your demons is uh, usually uh, metaphorical. Yeah, uh, yeah. Here, I get the sense it, there's no metaphor. It is, but it's also real. <laughs> but I think the best thing is when it's also real, because we uh, we can better deal with the things, making it up as a real thing to make it. Uh, yeah, uh, more apprehendable or more uh, f feeling it better. Yeah, and you said that it's uh, this is told without words. So yes. it, it's uh, was that a deliberate decision to then make the work more accessible for audiences internationally? Because instead of it having to be translated or surtitled. Uh, by telling it wordlessly, not only do you then reference some of the earliest masterpieces in, in the horror genre, yeah. but you also make a work that is immediately accessible. Yes, it was a sort of deliberate choice. In general, I'm not a writer, so I invent things, but the work I do is visual and physical, and I love dance and circus also, so I try to combine all elements. So I have a tendency to make things without words anyway. Uh, but in this case, 
I deliberately wanted to do it without words. I've done pieces with words. Uh, so one is that it could travel easily. But also, uh, I like when theater has, uh, can touch on another level. So if language is very concrete, you, you say something and it is that way. So it's sort of uh, put, um, yeah, I don't know how to say it in a good way. If it's visual and physical, I, it it's, uh, opens up uh, the meaning. It, it can mean more things at the same time. So it is depending on the audience who watch it, what they put together. So there's more to search for. And I like that uh, aspect. To take a step back for a moment, rather than just talking about this production, Horror, which is being presented by Art Centre Melbourne and running from the 18th to the 22nd of September. So book now, on in a few weeks' time. But you obviously love horror films. Can you remember the first horror film you watched? Yeah, this, uh, was, this was a ghost story on television. Uh, I don't know which one it was. I know it was a black and white but it must have been in the 70s so or beginning of the 80s uh no probably beginning of the 80s i i assume i was around 10 or 11 and i was very scared but i don't know if the film was black and white or the television because there was black and white television and when it got scary i was hiding behind the television and i was waiting and asking when the thing was over and when it was over i could come and watch it again that was my first experience but the first really where i uh, really digged in and enjoyed it i think uh, one first thing is uh, nightmare on elm street when it came out in 1984 i think i really enjoyed that and i thought okay you can tell different things and i like the dream and yeah the i think there's a lot of different levels to it so the first nightmare on elm, elm street was a really eye-opener yeah uh, my first horror film was Jaws, which I saw at the cinema when I think I was about seven years old. I was oh, yeah. probably far too young to see it, but yeah. it did terrify me. But it, it then also gave me a, uh, a love of horror films. And so I grew up watching kind of, and trying to track down films, uh, everything from kind of the Hammer horror movies, which I would get up to watch on television at three o'clock in the morning, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. Or, uh, and uh, my, my dad was a film buff, so we would go and see, he would take me to see things like uh, The ca uh, Cabinet of Dr Caligari. Oh, yeah. At a rare cinema yeah. screening, yeah. so it's it's a kind of one of the things I love about horror is that it provides you with a a safe scare, and then yeah. you can go back out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also as a horror as a genre feels endlessly mutable and changeable. Yeah. Um, with uh, with this stage production horror, are you hoping to change the genre, evolve the genre, or just celebrate the, the aspects of it that are closest to your heart? Uh, yeah, the last one probably is the first starting point to see it, but I hope also with the theatre that I do, which is very uh, maybe visual in the horror using this technology of uh, handcrafted special effects uh, because I don't uh, there are some video projection and now today technology is very developed and people tend to use that with video and digital and so and I try not to I'm really like uh, old-fashioned and pulling a string or putting a magnet or something like this and still creating very visual things also using the, th the working method of a magician and I hope that I, through the horror, also show that you can do more on stage than what people maybe thought was possible. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it on stage to see what is possible with yeah. <laughs> uh, the horror on stage. So, Jakob, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. My pleasure. 
a work which opened at the Malthouse Theatre last night, blasted by the late Sarah Kane, a British playwright whose work scandalised uh, the UK when she when it was first performed. I'm joined in the studio by Eloise Mignon and David Woods. Welcome to you both. Good morning, thank you. Lovely to have you here, and particularly after an opening night, which uh, yeah. kind of uh, it's not only the strain of performing in what I imagine is a pretty emotionally demanding uh, show, but yeah. then you kind of go out into a foyer and you're surrounded by people wanting to party afterwards as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to resist. Emotionally demanding party. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's talk, before we talk about the, this current production, I wanted to talk about the response that Blasted was met with when it premiered at, what, the Royal Court upstairs in mm. 1995. Sarah Kane's first play, uh, and it was... It was savaged, David. Would that be mm. a, a, fair, a fair... Yeah, I remember it well. I was, um, you know, working in the theatre scene in England at the time and um, it was unbelievable it was it was sort of like um, you know a witch hunt mm. um, and that, that it was garnering sort of half page coverage in a tabloid was remarkable um, I couldn't really believe it because um, you know I felt I didn't see what all the fuss was about, you know, and, I, and what I what I, what you do see is that there, and particularly in retrospect, it was this total lack of engagement with the intention and um, a sort of acceptance that those were choices. Mm. Um, it was it was unbelievable, really, and and you know that that strain of uh, sort of lazy criticism, unfortunately, isn't um, extinct. You know, there, there's I still. Uh, experienced that you know you were just asking before we were on air about whether we read reviews and how we cope with it and um you know if i see that a critic has singularly failed to engage with my higher purpose i'll probably stop reading quite quickly and that can be a good or a bad review you know i just think oh, well nothing to be interested in here you know mm -hmm. you want to be met where you've made you've made your offer you want that offer accepted and engaged with and clearly she wasn't Eloise, what did you know about kind of Blasted as a play before kind of agreeing to perform? And had you read the play before, for example? Or yeah, I'd read it as part of a subject in my BA, yeah. Um, but I hadn't written on it or engaged with it that much. But I do remember being quite blown away by it and, yeah, just found it kind of fascinating. And um, I guess Sarah Kane is a figure that I... Um, I'm too too young to remember as you know as like when she was you know producing the plays for the first time um but I have worked with several directors that have worked like have 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 directed Sarah Kane plays and so they always they referenced her a lot and so it was she always seemed like this important figure to me and I've seen a production of 448 Psychosis and read Phaedra's Love but I haven't seen or read Cleansed and Crave I've got to do mm. that yeah why is she such a, a significant playwright? And, and, and interestingly, mm. a significant yeah. playwright whose this work has not been performed, to my knowledge, on, on a main stage in Melbourne before. Right, yeah, I mm. didn't know that. Um, I think she's a really significant playwright because I think what she did in... Well, at least in Blasted, formally, and um, was to kind of really just articulate very, very clearly the you know, correspondences, structural correspondences under the capitalist patriarchy between the rape and exploitation of women and war and do it in such a clear and, you know, 
unadulterated way. Um, and I think that's like a really, really, you know, at the, I think that's a new thing, like to say, to say it with her, her view, you know, her lens or whatever. Cause yeah, like in the association obviously between, between rape and exploiting women and, and war, like goes back to pre-literary texts and, you know, even in the Iliad or whatever, but the, the like view is different. You know, there's like Homer blames Helen for the war mm. and Sarah Kane just like, you know, sees it as a, a different thing, right? Like it's the way... It's just another extension of patriarchy. Yeah, it's the way like men... She's. I, I remember reading in a... Rev, uh, sorry, not a review, in an interview um, that she said, yeah, the way men behave, it's like the end point of that is is war and the way men behave towards women and the end point of that is, is rape, basically. So, yeah. It is uh, a violent and uncomfortable play and it mm. needs to be uh, uncomfortable in order to uh, for the the clarity of uh, the, uh, to to make kind of lucid the point that it's making. Mm. Um, uh, kind of David, do you think one of the reasons that Kane was so kind of kind of attacked as a playwright when when the play premiered was because she was a young woman daring to kind of address uh, kind of a still then and as now very patriarchal culture. Absolutely. Um, no question about that. And, I mean, what can we say? It's, it, you know, it's taken... I think the fact that it's taken this long for these works to appear on a main stage, you know, there's been, there have been versions in... Le Boite, we should reference, and uh, Belvoir Downstairs, but, you know, not the big stage of any, any theatre in Australia, um, also reflects that, that we've got this ongoing dismissal of female artists and, um, you know, I know companies are working hard to redress that, but, you know, only this morning I read another um, kind of joint statement uh, from female playwrights in England saying, you know, this has to be the imbalance must be addressed it's pathetic mm. um, it, you know it's it's shocking that that's still going on now mm. um, having read so much about blasted it was fascinating to finally see the the, the production last night yeah. um, uh, directed by Anne Louise Sarks uh, and um, uh, Faisal uh, Bazi is yeah. uh, the, your, your co-performer in it mm. um, it's uh, it's a, a gruelling play in some ways for audience members, particularly those perhaps who don't know what to expect. But I imagine it must also be quite emotionally gruelling to perform in as well. Yeah, um, I think, interestingly, we discussed this in a counselling session. The Malthouse, like, and Anne-Louise, particularly under her kind of, I guess, impetus, have been incredibly supportive about that issue and, you know, offered us counselling and group sort of discussions and things like this and we check in with each other often about how we're feeling and going and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. Da David and I both said um, during the counselling session that in a, in a funny way, like, our characters get to, um, I guess, go on a on an adventure or a journey or something that, that, like, has some sort of redemption or satisfaction in the end, like, in different ways. But mine, I guess, can arguably be said to go from vulnerability to bit by bit to strength and just become basically essentially a survivor by the end you know a survivor who's just surviving under the patriarchy doing what she has to do prostituting herself for food 
you know, just like caring for others and, and, and doing what a lot of a lot of women do. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and David's David's character, I don't want to speak for David, but like has has the, the comeuppance that he sort of um, you know, merits perhaps. And but Faisal, interestingly, doesn't kind of get that sort of closure or whatever, you know, he has to lie lie on a bed with a bullet in his head for the rest mm. of the play, you know, after a yeah, intense scene that he does. Yeah. David, what's, talk to us about your experience of, of performing in the work. Yeah, um, I mean, I was so scared starting work on it. Um, the language in the stage directions read like a set of accusations against, um, you know, one of the sort of actors, male actors who've been hauled over the coals, um, you know, via the Me Too movement. Uh, so I was extremely nervous, I would say, about... Uh, or, let's say, wary of just doing everything step-by-step step negotiating. And I, I think we've actually reached this kind of new... almost like a new paradigm of protocols around intimacy work, which has been great, you know. Mm. And, the, and the, much needed in the theatre sector. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and so... We tried to get an intimacy consultant to advise us, just like we have a stage fight consultant. Then we realised that basically all the intimacy was directly related to the fight. You know, that it was the the two were almost inseparable. All the acts of violence were also related to acts of intimacy, and so we kind of included that in the fight choreography. You know, that you have that much detail and care for safety um, with the intimacy work. Uh, as you do with the normal sort of fighting work and then intimacy is neglected, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you'll kiss her later kind of thing. And, you know, but all mm. of those things we we broke down into negotiated, sort of careful, but, you know, convincing versions of what we want to conjure. Um, and I think, you know, we've uh, for me, I mean, it's just absolutely groundbreaking, the, the kind of um, protocols we established, and that's been great. Um, and I think there should be now a burgeoning industry and intimacy consultants who should be available for TV shows. You, you get them in New York, LA, and London, but not at the moment in Australia. So if everyone's anyone's thinking of a, a, a career in the performance world, that would be a great thing to learn about. Um, and yeah, we did it, and you know, we we didn't know each other before, so mm. you know, it was a huge thing to build up you know bit by bit so we earned the trust of each other and um david became my running coach yeah well we had that as our breakout <laughs> we used running <laughs> just lunch, as a physical relief yeah at just lunchtime fresh we do laps of the space. tan yeah and david is an amazing coach <laughs> <laughs> that's my and that my was a good way to kind of connect physically and yeah yeah, yeah. bond <laughs> would you like to see the industry perhaps uh, has it well actually let me rephrase it has there been interest from other theater companies in hearing about the way that you've the approach that has been made in the uh, to the protocols around intimacy and violence in this production have other companies started to get in touch with the malthouse to say what have you learned and how can we use it and if they haven't, would you like to see them do that? Yeah, I, I think it's probably pretty necessary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. N no um, and yes is the short answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, it'll come up when it comes up and then there'll be, I'm sure there'll be this uh, scrabble for where's the expertise now? And, we, you know, we're currently holding and Annie Lou's holding a lot of this expertise that 
would be of great benefit to any sort of work like that. But yeah, um, it needs to be done. It, yeah, certainly, it needs to become the new normal in the sector. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because because I think yeah, like um, as a as a as a woman, um, I've probably had had less like. You know, I don't have the the, f- the fear in me as much as as maybe like men do um, about about the you know the Me Too to movement or whatever. You, you know, I, I, like it was funny. Like a few times, I think David was far more careful with me than I was with David, and that's you know, I guess just yeah, because I'm unused to feeling like worried that if I'm you know like yeah doing inappropriate touching or something that I'll be. You know, hold over the coals for it or something. So yeah, there were a few times where I had to um, apologise afterwards to David for like biting him or scratching or kissing him without asking. And he was yeah, on the contrary, like extremely, extremely polite and always very careful about yeah my personal space. Uh, do you think audiences for Blasted may need counselling themselves? You as performers have had, have mm. had counselling. Because yeah. it, it's clearly signposted going into the theatre, the, yeah. the, the violent sexual violence and, and the, the many other confronting kind of elements it contains. Mm. Um, Not to mention the herbal cigarettes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, there are counselling numbers offered um, and promoted on the various bits of publicity and when you book and so on you get... Um, referred to the those resources so it is important and I always ask people I know if they're okay afterwards um, but yeah there, there's it doesn't end like that you know I, I think there, there's been shows that I've done where I've been punched in the foyer afterwards by audiences you know in a kind of playful but semi-aggressive way and this one doesn't have that people would more, be more inclined to sort of hug you and uh kind of, you know, share a moment of consolation and almost like hope um, because of that huge trip through that stuff and this sort of purgatorial uh, sequence that I, my character has to mm. go through. Mm. Um, that the, the, There's not that unresolved anger at the end. There is, there's a kind of new place. You know, it might be this, yes, men are blinded and buried and maybe castrated for us to <laughs> be able to flourish in the future. But, you know, these are all stepping stones to a, a more balanced way of being together. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, I had some f- feedback last night actually from from friends who actually found it um, gratifying to watch because they, you know, and I think a lot of young women have been through similar experiences on, on, on a large spectrum of, of that kind of, you know, yeah, um, I guess just manipulation or exploitation or you know an outright date rape um or, or sexual harassment or whatever um and yeah and I had some friends that, that actually find it really found it satisfying to watch and and kind of were like yes you know I want to see him touch her like that and then apologize for it and then you know and I want I want an audience to witness that and see yeah like how ugly it is or how, how wrong it is and how yeah to have that shared experience. Yes. Yeah. Eloise Mignon and David Woods, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank, thank you very much, Richard. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.